Redemption Church. I'm going to miss this little intro video. It is just every week I'm like, man, I love that. Again, Don and Trent got together, did that, did a great job on it. But today, 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 by the end of the day, you're going to be able to check off on your life bucket list that you have gone through a study of the book of Numbers in a church on Sunday morning and you might have liked it, all right? So I remember when I started this, people were like, really, can we, can we do anything out of numbers? Is there stuff to learn from numbers? And what we've done over the last four weeks and now today is shown that numbers is in fact for our learning, for our growth, for our reflection, for our development. We can learn from the mistakes of others so that we don't duplicate those same things. And so today is no different. We're going to be hitting a lot of different points today. We're going to be moving pretty swift. And so just want to always remind you that we have an app that has notes that you can follow along with. You can fill in blanks. All the passages we're looking at are going to be in that, that set of notes this morning. But I want to go ahead and just settle this today. Go ahead and take a moment to pray. And then we're just going to race through this last chunk of uh, this fourth work of the Old Testament. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you. As we have seen in Numbers, you are the God of Numbers. Uh, you are there with them in the wilderness. You are there guiding them, leading them, confronting them, shaping them, preparing them to be a nation to bless the nations. And as we, as your church, reflect on the story, I pray that we will learn the lessons of Israel, that we won't make the same mistakes as Israel, that we won't be a generation that gets sidelined because of our own uh, want of comfort or control or certainty, but rather we will be pliable, that we will be hungry for your kingdom purposes, that we will want to learn your values and live those values, especially when it's hard, especially when we feel the pressure of life and we worry about what the future may hold, that we will trust you because we know you hold our future. And so we look to you today to close this out, to teach us what we need to see and help us to really trust you along the way. And so, Jesus, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so the book of Numbers has a lot of numbers, but all of the numbers aren't as important as one particular number in the book of Numbers. Yes, I said numbers a lot of times. So, the most important number that this whole work is all about is the number 40. Right? Because it's capturing that period of time from when the Israelites are leaving Egypt and they're getting out of slavery, they're going to their ancestral home, they're taking back their land. That stretch of time is 40 years. And yet that 40 years happens not because it takes that long to get from Egypt to Israel. It's only like two to three weeks by way of kind of foot travel. Rather, it's a journey that's that long because God takes them literally into the wilderness. That's the Hebrew meaning of this book. And the 40 years is designed to strip the people bare of the vices that they've picked up for 400 years in Egypt and to instill in them a new sense of virtue and values designed to bless the nations. I always want to remind us that God's story since Abraham is to bless the nations. It's not just about one nation and one group of people, but how those people are to be a tool to show God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's beauty to the world. To reclaim what was lost in Eden and make it new for God's creation. That's the heart. And so with that, we started off in Numbers chapter 1, and we saw this first section where uh, Israel was obeying God. And for a solid three weeks, they obey. 
They're doing everything God wants them to do, but after three weeks and three days, they hit the road, and immediately it goes from obeying God to testing God. And they're complaining, and they're grumbling, and they're whining, and then they kind of up the ante, and they go from testing God to full-blown disobeying God. The lady disobeys God, the Levites disobey God, the leaders disobey God, and from that, an entire generation Every single person that was brought out of Egypt will forfeit their opportunity for the promised land. They will not inherit the promise that God has offered to them. They will give it up, and it will go to the next generation. They will receive it. From that, we went into week four, and that was all about learning from God, where we start to see a crossover. The first generation is beginning to peel away. Uh, They haven't really caught all the lessons, but the next generation's beginning to step up, step in, do some things, and God is working in their context. Well, that takes us then to this final week, which is renewing from God, where the first generation looks back on their parents, and they go, yeah, we don't want to do it that way. And we see the promises of God that he has for us, and we want to do it more his way. Now, they're not going to do it perfectly, We're not going to see that in this series, but eventually we'll get to Deuteronomy and then maybe someday Joshua and Judges, and man, it's all a mess from there. But for this generation, there's lessons to be learned. Now, to understand Numbers a little bit more, because we've been trying to understand kind of the patterns to this book, uh, Numbers has these two halves. One half is the first generation. The other half is the second generation. But it doesn't break out evenly. In other words, this particular work of the Bible isn't divided equally in half. No, a big chunk of the first half is all about that first generation, but then basically from chapters 26 to 36, it's the second generation and what we see from them. And so we're crossing that threshold today, right? We're kind of crossing the generational divide. But to understand this for a minute, I want us to step back to last week. Because we have to kind of look at last week a little bit to know where this is going today. And so with last week, what we saw was kind of the first point in your notes, if you're taking those with us this morning, which is blessed, blessed, blessed are the people of God Almighty. That's where we left off. A new hope for the people of Israel. So in that scene, we recall that there was a king of Moab that hires a warlock to basically just cast voodoo curses on the nation of Israel because the king of Moab sees what's coming and he's like, man, they're going to stomp us, romp us, crush us, kill us. We're going to lose. So he hires this pagan prophet to come and just fundamentally call on the power of the, the nearby gods to bring curses on Israel. And so we saw in the story, there's these three different environments or mountains where this occurs on. And he's supposed to bring curses from these mountains. And the reason he's on these mountains is because those mountains represent certain deities. So in essence, Balaam's going to call on the power of false gods to curse Israel, and from that, give victory to the king of Moab. At least that's supposed to be the the plan in this. But instead, what do we see happens with Balaam? God confronts him, and he says, you're not allowed to curse Israel. You have to bless them. And so in three different occasions, on three different mountain peaks, on the territorial range of three different false gods, Balaam issues blessing instead of curses. And thematically, what you're supposed to get from that is not only is God stepping in to defend Israel, 
right? But in this, God is showing that he has power over the gods of the region again. Just like he did in Egypt, he defeats the 10 gods of Egypt with 10 plagues. Now God is defending three or kind of destroying or wiping out or disempowering three different deities in this region. So he's just showing he's greater than all the other alleged gods. And it's in that time that even Balaam himself has this epiphany. In fact, we saw that the Spirit of God washes over him and he begins to speak, not just out of divination as he had before, but now by the power of God's Spirit himself, he begins to say some things. And this is what he says in the third blessing. He says, How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob! How lovely are your homes, O Israel! God brought them out of Egypt. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Now, normally I'd say, I want you to picture the scene, but here's the thing. I have a picture of the scene, which is even better. So, right here, this would be kind of an idea in a comic book form of what's going on. Here's Balaam. He said, blessed, blessed, blessed. The king of Moab is mad. You're looking down on the great cross of God. The nation of Israel camped there for all of the world to see. It's this awesome scene where God has defended them. God has looked out for them. God has protected them in this space. An eternal blessing has been declared. Blessing for the people. Blessing for the camp. And you would think that with that kind of scene, with God showing up in such a big way, ahead of any kind of combat, that the people would be like, we finally get it. We're going to follow God, worship God, obey God, do the right thing. You would think the first generation would finally lock it in. No. If this is a comic book, the next panel would say, meanwhile. Right? So Balaam's on the mountain. He said, blessed, blessed, blessed. God has stepped in for Israel. And meanwhile, while the Israelites were camped at Shittim, the Shittim's going to hit the fan. Some of the men, I didn't name it. All right, don't blame me. All right. Some of the men defiled themselves with having se- by having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend services or sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor. Where has God been defending the Israelites? Mount Peor. On the turf of Baal of Peor, the god of Peor. So God has been on that god's turf defending Israel. And what does Israel do in the meantime? They open the gates and invite the God of Peor right into their camp. Just come right on in. So while God is defending and blessing, they're inviting curses on themselves. And this kind of gives us a potent lesson. It's the second thing in your notes, right? When they are defended from the curses above, only to fall to the curses below. This is where the Midians, they strike back. And I think the lesson here is that sometimes, I think even as Christians, even as churches, we have this tendency to say, oh, it's the outside world that is is out there that's the threat. But the real threat can be from inside when our own wants, passions, insecurities, hungers cause us to open our own doors and just invite the garbage in. Right? It happens in our own personal hidden lives even where we desire a thing and we don't resist but instead we, we draw in, we bring, we 
have it roost in the camp. See, so often we think out there's the problem. But sometimes the problem is in here. We want out there in here. But then there's a bigger part of the story that I think is just sort of like, huh, kind of interesting, right? So again, going back, Balaam is supposed to curse Israel. Instead, Balaam blesses Israel. And so his cursing plan falls apart by God's design. But he seems to accept that that's God's plan, and he seems to be okay with it in the end. What we didn't realize is that he had a backup plan as well. He had a time bomb plan. So if the cursing on high didn't work, maybe cursing from below would. So later in chapter 31, we're going to see a sequel to this event. And the sequel is going to be a conflict between Moab and Israel. But what drives the conflict, why God calls Israel to go and invade Moab and go to war with Moab, was this. They're dealing with the very ones who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. See, this is where Balaam is sly, bro. He's like, okay, I'm not going to get him with curses, but I can get him with conniving. Right? So I can't get them from on high, but I can get them from below. I can't curse the camp from above, but I can curse the camp from within. And it seems that it, it works, right? And this is why I'll always say the greatest threat is the danger we have internally. Our own proclivity to seek folly, right? What's also interesting about this from a structural perspective to the book of Numbers is that it represents another bookend in the story. So if you remember back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the rock that back in Exodus, at the beginning of the 40 years, Moses strikes and water comes from, and it's a good thing, even though the people were grumbling and that was a bad thing, God provides that. And then it says the rock travels with them through the wilderness, and there in this final year, Moses gets angry, strikes the rock twice, water comes forth for the people, but from that it's a bookend of, man, you blew it, Moses. The whole generation has blown it. Laity, Levites, now you as the leader, right? So you had this bookend with the rock. Well, here there's another bookend, and it has to do with the sin of what happens at mountains. So in year one, there was the sin that happened at Mount Sinai. And now, kind of in year 40-ish, you have the sin of Mount Peor. And they mirror each other, right? So you see it on the this, this, this screen here. Back in Exodus, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and God is there for the people, just as God was there for the people at Mount Peor. But down at the base, back in year one, they're worshiping the golden calf, just as they are now worshiping here the gods of the Midianites and Moab. So the same problem. They're worshiping and they're sacrificing to these gods instead of to their God, right? So it's showing the brokenness of their conditions. And in the first occurrence, the Levites go and cleanse the camp. In this occurrence, one Levite, Phinehas, which is the grandson of Aaron, he takes this action upon himself to begin to purify the camp. In the first, Moses brings atonement, but now it's the next generation that brings atonement for the people. And at that first event, God said, if you do this again, I'm warning you what's going to happen. And now here he fulfills what he said would happen. It says, The Lord issued the following command. He said, Seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight, so his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. 
So Moses ordered Israel's judges, each of you must put to death the men under your authority who've joined in the worship of Baal of Peor so the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but not before 24,000 people had died. And what it seems from the book of Numbers is with that event, the last of the first generation is expunged. All that rebellion, all that grumbling, all of that testing, all of that disobedience, all of that refusal to learn is sort of put to rest with the first generation at this event. And that then kind of paves the way for the second generation that God can work with them, use them, mobilize them, and move them to his purposes. That leads us into the third point in your notes. The rebooting, the rebooting of a new generation, but with different objectives. So you remember how chapter one starts? Bunch of numbers. You know how chapter 26 starts? Bunch of numbers. Looks the same. It signals the divide. Verse one. After the plague had ended, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, who is Aaron's son, the priest, from the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their families, list the men 20 years older, of age or older, who are able to go to war. Just like chapter one, we're just creating a whole new list, whole new generation that's going to inhabit and inherit what God has. So in verse 51, at the end of that chapter, in summary, the registered troops of Israel all numbered 601,730. If you compare the numbers from chapter 1 to chapter 26, it's about 2,000 less than before. And here's why that's important. What was the 40 years? It was the the parents of these soldiers. We're all going to die. Our kids are going to die. We have no food. We have no water. Why did you bring us to this miserable wasteland? Why don't we go back to Egypt? And at the end, God's like, yeah, look, you're the same size, dummies. I took care of you. Your kids are fine. You worried about your kids and you want to go to Egypt? It was more about you want to go back to Egypt, not your kids, because your kids I provided for. I've taken care of them because I have a commitment to a thousand generations, and this is just generation two of this whole gig, right? I love it. But there's a difference between the first census and the second census. The first was about building an invasion army. This one, God says, count it all up, and then he immediately doesn't go into discussions about invasion, but discussions about distributing the land to the tribes, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, divide the land among the tribes and, dis- and distribute the grants of land in proportion to the tribe's populations as indicated by the number of the names in the list. Here's basically how this is different. And the first group, it's like, hey, you're gonna have to go into to the land with warfare. And it felt like, are we gonna win? Are we not gonna win? We don't know. Here, God's just point blank saying, you're gonna get the land, right? Matter of fact, let's just skip the whole thing of battle. That's going to be true. But the bottom line is you're going to win. You're going to divvy up the land. It's going to be yours. So let's just get ahead of the plan and plan for that now. So it's meant to bring comfort and calm and reassurance and conviction that God is taking care of the nation. And so from this, it says in verse 63, these are the results of the registration of the people of Israel. Not one person on this list has been among those listed in the previous registration that was taken in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they will all die in the wilderness. Not one of them will survive except Caleb and Joshua. So this closes out generation one. It boots into effect generation two. 
And that leads to the fourth thing in your notes, the final transfer of generational leadership. Verse 12 says, One day the Lord said to Moses, Climb one of the mountains east of the river and look out over the land I've given the people of Israel. After you have seen it, you will die. So what happens when you rebel. And he did. He says, because you rebelled against my instruction in the wilderness of Zen, you didn't show people my holiness, my otherness. You took those things for granted. But then Moses still cares about the people. This is what I still love about his heart for all of his messiness and all of his problems. And there's going to be some more in the story. I love the fact that he still loves the people. And so he says, oh Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. Please appoint a new man as leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go so that the community of the Lord will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. Which is funny because Jesus quotes this later, right? Where we all need a shepherd as a sheep. So the Lord's replied and he said, take Joshua who has my spirit in him and lay your hands on him and present him to Eleazar the priest before the whole community and publicly commission him to lead the people. Transfer some of your authority to him so the whole community of Israel will obey him. So God's Still going to give him a leader. But there's going to be a difference between how Moses sought the Lord and how Joshua is to seek the Lord. It says in verse 21, when direction from the Lord is needed, Joshua will stand before Eleazar the priest who will use the Urim, which is one of the sacred casting lots, and will cast it before the Lord to determine his will. This will show Joshua and the rest of the community of Israel how to determine everything that they should do. We might look at some of these details and go, huh? But here's the thing. Under Moses, God would just directly speak to him. Like, Moses, do this. Moses, don't do this. Take them here, take them there, tell them this, tell them that. That's what it was. In this next generation, it's going to be a little bit more removed. Right? God is not going to directly speak to Joshua in the same way he spoke to Moses. That was a special relationship. It's going to require of both Joshua and the priests and the people humility, seeking, patience, Sometimes a lack of clarity and therefore the need for greater wisdom. To not rush into things, but to pause and, and wait on the Lord for some things. See, I, I look at that and I go, in some ways, they will be in the same situation as we are today. Like we have scripture, but sometimes we need to work it through. Sometimes we need to grow in wisdom. Sometimes we need to wrestle. Sometimes we really need to pray stuff out before we take action in a thing. God doesn't skywrite every day at five o'clock saying, here's my plan for today. So it takes again, humility and seeking and desiring and patience, all these things that are really valuable. They will wrestle through those just as we do. I think at this point, what we want to do with numbers and realize what it's trying to get at is that it invites us to do what the purpose of the book is. I go back to what Paul said when he said, um, numbers exist or these stories exist for our learning so we don't make the same mistakes, right? And, and it's kind of in light of that, we go, man, I, I want to make sure that as I get to this juncture, I'm like that second generation that looks back and says, uh, are, are we making the same mistakes as the ones that came before us? Are, are we falling into the same complaining and grumbling, right? Are we risking as a generation right now, right here, today, here at Redemption Church in Duval, right? Are we risking as another generation being benched, right? Like the first generation in Numbers was because they wanted control and they wanted certainty and they wanted comfort. 
They wanted safety and security and stability according to their means and ends, according to their sensibilities and their interests in life. Like, are we in that space? Are we more like the second generation, ripe and ready? Or are we like the first generation, kind of sour, and we want to go backwards? Because I hear that sometimes in, in our American Christian context, oh, to go back to the way it was. Let's go back to this old America that we long for, and we don't hunger for the America God wants to make or the world God wants to make. We just want to go back to our Egypt where it was easy, right? This is where we want to learn from the generations, right? It means we want to look back and go, do we want to do it like them or do we want to do it different? Or more importantly, uh, how will you do it different? Is it important to do it different. Well, from this, Moses did as the Lord commanded. He presented Joshua to Eleazar and the whole community. And there Moses laid hands on him and commissioned him to lead the people just as the Lord had commanded. And so you see this transfer to a new era. And it's then symbolized in what happens next. It's a fascinating point to me. It's like this nerdy, theological, kind of structural thing, but I think it's helpful to at least touch on. It's the fifth thing in your notes. It's the echoes of Eden to restore order to the earth. There's these echoes of Eden. So in uh, chapter 28, what you kind of have here, or is like as we're moving from the previous chapter into this chapter, is like what we see between November and January every four years with the presidency, roughly. Right? So there's an election. Let's say the previous president loses the election. The new president's going to step in, or they've served their term. Their eight years is over, and there's some transition of power. And that period of time is like this overlap, right? Where one president still has some authority, but the new one coming in is starting to kind of gain knowledge and authority, and there's transition. And that's what's going on here. So Moses is fading away. Joshua's stepping in. He's taking over. And it's kind of in light of this that God's preparing them to resettle Israel as what their responsibilities are in the world. So from this, in chapter 28, the Lord said to Moses, give these instructions to the people of Israel. The offerings you present as a special gift are a pleasing aroma to me. They're like my food. So see to, see to it that they are brought at the opportune times and offered according to my instructions. Now, at this point, if you were reading numbers, your eyes would just roll into the back of your head and you glaze over. Because you'd be like, okay, there's an offering for this, an offering for that, and there's this and that. And, and it's like, we almost kind of go, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, I don't care. It's not my jam. I don't have to worry about this stuff. But again, if we go into the themes of what's going on, in chapter 28, all of the offerings that are there are in essence the reestablishing of Genesis 1 in a Genesis 3 world. Here's what I mean by this. In Genesis 3 is when the wheels come off the wagon and sin enters into the equation. But in Genesis 1, that's where God is doing some pretty phenomenal things that are ultimately at the core of it, bringing order from chaos. That's the creation account. And so while we don't have time to get into all the symbolism and everything else, the bottom line of Genesis 1 is, again, it's light from darkness, day from night, rest from work, harvest from cultivation, and in there even life itself, 
which the Passover captures how God is the source of life, and apart from God, there's only death, right? So in Genesis 1, you have God is the God of order, light, beauty, creation, cultivating, all of that we're supposed to do. And now God's telling Israel, that's still your job. You're like a new Eden. You're like a new Adam and a new Eve, and I want you to do a new thing to bless the world. So all of those things that they do there, all of these offerings, remind them of, oh yeah, Genesis 1 still matters today. And then, in the next section, which is chapters kind of 29 and 30, we see it's the restoring of Genesis 2 in the Genesis 3 world. In Genesis 2, what you see is that there was the man, there was the woman, and they were dwelling with God. They were enjoying God's presence. They would walk with God in the cool of the day. We see a hint of that in Genesis 3, that God was expecting to do that, and then he finds that they had rebelled. And so the festival of trumpets, the offering of atonement, the festival of shelters, all kind of ground them in the reminder of, oh yeah, we're meant to dwell with God. God's meant to dwell with us, right? We're supposed to be in a place where we can enjoy his presence, and his presence can be among his people. Even the fulfillment of vows for husbands and wives go back to Genesis 2. So it's not that it's an exact parallel, but it's like an echo. And so the people of Israel are again to be reminded of, oh, that's right. God's plan in Genesis is the plan he has for us. And the more we embrace that plan, the more we can bless the nations. Just as, as, as Eden was meant to, to kind of envelop the world, so too Israel is meant to bring this beauty and love and grace and light to envelop the world. And so it just reminds them of their macro mission. From there, it snaps right into a micro focus. It's the sixth thing in your notes. God keeps his word to curse those who curse Israel. This is the return to the Israelites now, right? So there was a new hope, and then, man, the Midianites, they wiped out the Israelites, and, and now the Israelites are stepping back in to kind of make things right in this, and it's a showdown. It's a showdown because of what Balaam did through Moab and hurt Israel and everything else. But if you remember, when, when, when Balaam gave the prophecy that he did to the king of Moab, he said, uh, here's the deal, king. God says he will bless anybody who blesses Israel, and he will curse anybody who curses Israel. And the, the lesson there is that at that point, the king of Moab should have said, well, then let's bless Israel, right? Because then Moab would have survived. Moab would have thrived. Moab would have experienced the blessing of the nations. They would have been the first nation to be blessed by God as he, they are blessing his nation. They, they would have reaped just wonderful benefits. But instead, what's the king of Moab do? He says, pound sand, not going to do it. We're going to just send like some crazy traveling orgy with idols into the camp instead. We're going to curse Israel. We're not going to bless them. From this, Israel 2.0, the second generation, is then sent in. And so the Lord said to Moses, on behalf of the people of Israel, take revenge on the Midianites for leading them into idolatry. After that, you will die and join your ancestors. This is where you want to stretch out a war for a little bit, right? You're like, after we win, I die? Okay, let's see if we can keep this thing going for another 40 years. So he doesn't do that, though, right? But it's interesting because the very first military campaign of the new generation will be the last military action of Moses. And so he orders a thousand troops from each of the 12 tribes to go be a part of this conflict. And then they outline kind of what I would call the uh, rules of engagement for a holy war, which is kind of what this is. And so from this in verse 7, it says, They attacked Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed all the men. All five of the Midianite kings died in battle, and they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. So he finally gets his own, right? 
Then the Israelite army captured the Midianite women and children and seized their cattle and flocks and all their wealth as plunder. And so it, it's, they dismantle the military and political machine that stands between them and their promised land. And they wipe out kind of the chief military strategist that got them in all sorts of trouble to begin with. Now, from that point to, toward the end of the chapter, there's some things that if you read it, and I was planning to go into it, and I'm like, no, I love you enough to not go into it this morning after all. But there's some stuff in there that will be amidst the most troubling stuff you read in the Bible. And there are things that Moses commands the army to do that if you read back earlier, it's not what God says, but it's what Moses seems to kind of go an extra step on. And it's pretty destructive. And I do think we should read those stories sometimes and say, that's something to learn from. That's never right. It doesn't matter who the spokesman is. That's not right. So the story then ends as the generals and captains come to Moses and they said, we, your servants, have accounted for all the men who went out to battle under the command and not one of them is missing. We are also presenting the items of gold we captured as an offering to the Lord. This will purify our lives before the Lord and make us right with him. Two notes. First of all, from chapter 1 to chapter 25, by the end of 25, going into 26, everybody in the first generation is dead except for Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. Right? And Moses is going to die. We know that. After that, from 26 to the end, not one person dies. So God is again showing his loyalty to the next generation to despite the, the, the failures of, of the first. And so that's the first thing you notice here, which is why they say, not one of us even died. Like, it's amazing. God protected every one of us. Again, because God is faithful to what he's doing. The other thing that we note is that the generals and captains of the second generation, they seem to see, in my opinion at least, and this is just my opinion, they see a little bit where Moses may have overstretched and what he required and so it says they presented offerings to purify their lives before the Lord, right? Like there's something about this where they go, we know we need purification, but they take that step, right? They, 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 they live in an interesting time where there are certain rules that are very different than the rules that we live by today, but there's still this sensitivity of like, God, if we have erred, we want to be right in your sight. And so they take those, those steps, this again shows that the second generation is learning and they're growing. And it's not the only way. We see a couple other examples that, that is penned into the book of Numbers. And it's number seven in your notes. When compromise moves from being a sin to being a virtue. They, they take a unique step a couple of different times in this particular story of the Bible. Um, and it's weird when you think about the word compromise. Because sometimes compromise is bad. And other times compromise is good. And in the first generation, they tended to not compromise where they should. And then they failed to, to forgo compromise when they should have just walked away from it. So they, they really had bad bearings. But the next generation, they're a little bit more clear-minded. They show wisdom and nuance. And so there's these two different accounts. One is about women, land, and uh, kind of the law, like women owning property. And then the other is about having permission to remain outside of the promised land. There's these two different things that get recorded in the story. When it comes to the first one, here's the simple version. Um, you know, uh, God says, all right, divvy up the land so all the families get some inheritance of property. 
And it seems that there is this group of women that come to Moses and the leaders and they go, here's the problem. Women can't own property. Only men can own property. Women can't pass on property because they can't own the property. And in our strata of generation, there are no males. So we can't have an inheritance and therefore we can't pass it down to our children. So what are we to do? Because the law forbids it, the tradition forbids it. How are we going to move forward? And they all sit down and they work through a problem and they come up with a plan and they compromise. And from that, these women are allowed to have property as long as when they have children, if they marry husbands outside of their tribe, the property doesn't go to the new tribe. It goes to their ancestral tribe. So there's compromise and they work it out, right? Which is so different than what the first generation probably would have done. And then there's this other issue of permission to remain on the other side of the Jordan River. So there are two tribes that say, you know what? We like it over here on this side. We would rather just farm this land and let the other 10 tribes have the promised land. And this starts all kinds of strife because Moses is like, okay, I remember last time, way back, there was like two guys that wanted to go and 10 guys that didn't want to go. And from that, we couldn't even inherit the land. And now it's just flip-flopped. We've got two groups that don't want to go and 10 that do. What are we going to do, right? They compromise. And the two tribes say, listen, we just want to farm this land, but we're with Israel. We'll fight alongside Israel. You're our family, and we are with you. And from that, Moses and everybody goes, this is a good plan. This is a great idea. Let's do this instead. See, I, I, I love those stories. Because so often, especially when faith and religion's involved, we feel the need to dig in and have a conviction on everything, and we refuse compromise. But here they compromise because they go, there is place for peace, there is place for difference, and yet in that brotherhood, and they work toward those things. All of this just models the whole lesson of numbers, which is the final point in your notes. Learning from the past as you prepare for the future. That's the story. So, as chapter 33 opens, we see that there's this giant listing of all their camp spots. The route the Israelites followed as they marched out of Egypt at the Lord's direction, right? Moses kept a written record of the progress, all the stages of the march, all the different places where they stopped along the way. And that wasn't just because he's like, ah, I just like to write a lot of weird names that nobody will be able to pronounce in 2023, right? It's because every one of those places, the Israelites would read it and go, I remember that camping spot. That's where they did stupid stuff. Oh, and I remember that one. That's where we actually stopped being dumb for just a little bit. And then that next one, yeah, but we're dumb again, right? So all of that was meant to go like, oh, there's a story involved. There's a cautionary tale. There's a lesson to be learned all along the journey. And that's true for our own lives. That's true for our history of Christianity, right? We should look at the last 2,000 years of Christianity and go, oh, that's where we didn't do some stuff right. Oh, that's where we got it squared up. Oh, that's where we were really good to the poor. Oh, that's where we really oppressed some people. And we should learn the lessons. Just as much as in our own personal lives or in our family history, learn the lessons, right? So they're meant to look back. But then they look back because they're supposed to look forward to what's coming next. That's chapter 33, verse 50. While they were camped at the Jordan River, the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, you must drive out all the people that are living there. You must destroy all their carved and molten images and demolish all their pagan shrines. Take possession of the land and settle it, because I have given it to you to occupy. He's like, I've given you the land, but in the land there's going to be a temptation to follow other gods. Do yourself a favor and clear that out before it's ever a problem. Now here's the problem. When you finally see it happen, they don't clear it all out. 
and it creates hundreds of years of misery leading again to their captivity. Right? They didn't learn the lessons well enough looking back, and they will eventually fail going forward. But for this generation, they'll receive the land. So then the last chapters, 34 to 36, are the final instructions. And they're related to land for the laity, cities for the Levites, and refuge for the law evaders. And we're not going to get into all those details, but the bottom line is it's all about inheritance, about holiness, and about mercy. That God is always kind of immersing them in principles that really drive to the core of our person. And with that, Numbers concludes with the final words. These are the commands and regulations that the Lord gave to the people of Israel through Moses while they were camped in the plains of Moab beside the Jordan River across from Jericho. See, the reason we go through this particular work of the Bible is to learn about lessons when it comes to a troubled past, to look about opportunities and possibilities for a bright and glorious future. But that is if we listen and if we lean into the God who leads his people, not just then, but leads his people today. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, man, we were drinking from the fire hose, moving through all of these details in these last 10 chapters. But, but at the core, it's meant to teach us, to guide us, to show us, to warn us. I pray that we will be more like that second generation, less like the first. That we will be teachable, pliable, seeking, ready, believing your promises, right? That we will be in that space that, that longs for you to truly guide in all that we do. Now, I know there may be some in this room this morning or some watching online where you're like, man, I'm not led by that God. I am not following him as he has made me to follow. And if you want to follow him today, for you, it's an acknowledgement before God and before Jesus, I need you. I've gone and done my own things. I have not submitted my life to you, and I want my life surrendered and submitted so that I might enjoy your promises and your purposes. If you make that your prayer today, uh, we want to know about that. In our app, there's a tile. You can click on that and say, I've decided to follow Jesus today. That's really what this is all about. And if, if you've made that decision, we would love to come alongside you in that. It's a big decision. It's an important decision, but it's a decision where God will then use you to continue his plan to bless the nations through Jesus' kingdom, through his work, through his love. Jesus, we thank you. For reminder, we thank you for grace. We thank you for our need for you and our dependence on you. So we praise you in your good name. Amen.